Father, we thank you so much for your incredible love. And Lord, we, we need you more than ever before now as we uh, see things uh, shifting into high gear, uh, racing toward the end times. Lord, it's exciting. It's invigorating. It's a reminder of your faithfulness and that you're still in charge. Uh, and yet at the same time, it's unsettling. And we just need uh, to just feel your love like a warm winter blanket and just know that you're there and that your grace is amazing. And uh, so we thank you for uh, just the, the words to those songs. And I pray now as we dive into our subject matter that you just go before us, that it would be a clear and encouraging. And most of all, Lord, we pray if there's one listening to my voice tonight that doesn't know you, that through what we're going to be studying tonight, it would convict them, your Holy Spirit would convict them of their need for a Savior. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, I've got a lot to cover tonight, and uh, we're going to talk fast, and hopefully uh, as we get through this material, we'll still have time for questions. If not, I promise to yield back some time next week for some questions, but lots going on in the world. And uh, so just to review, we talked about uh, the stage being set prophetically and looked at several key prophecies in Scripture like the Battle of Gog and Magog and the rise of the Antichrist and so forth. And then we looked at how the stage is being set geologically and atmospherically uh, last week. And if you haven't had a chance to watch that video, I encourage you to check that out. And tonight... Uh, it may come as no surprise, given all that's happened in the last few days, that we're going to talk about how the stage is being set economically, economically. And before we get into some of the material that uh, I've put together for uh, this study to show that, in fact, we are seeing the world, the stage being set for uh, the economic collapse and the institution of a one-world financial system, I want to just talk about some general principles about money so that we draw everything back to uh, the scripture. And so, uh, you know, why does money uh, matter? Well, it matters because it was created by God. Um, you know, back before the introduction of coin, coinage uh, in the late 8th century BC, the means of exchange was just some form of barter. And throughout the ancient Near East and ancient times, people would use all kinds of commodities, uh, sometimes perishable, sometimes imperishable. Uh, all kinds of things, honey, livestock, timber, wine, metals, as exchangeable uh, goods. In fact, the Bible, as well as extra-biblical documents, show that from the earliest times, uh, whenever periodic attempts were made to stabilize the values of these commodities uh, with respect to each other, it didn't always go as planned. Uh, in the Bible, wealth was measured by the possession of cattle and other things like precious metals. Uh, for example, in Genesis chapter 13, the Bible tells us Abram was very rich. Well, how was he rich? He was rich in silver and in gold. Uh, or in Job, uh, his possessions were what? You know, a very healthy 401k or a huge bank account? No, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household. In the, in the New Testament, the Greek word argurion is translated money 11 times. It's actually the word silver. But in our English Bible translations, they choose to translate it uh, money 11 times and 9 times silver, at least in the New King James, which is what I use. So it's used 20 times in the New Testament, argurion, uh, and, it's, uh, and it's typically translated money. So, for example... In uh, Luke chapter 9, as Jesus is sending out the 12, he says, 
take nothing for the journey, neither staffs nor bag nor bread nor money. Now, we read that in English and we think, you know, tangible cash, right? But in Greek, the way it was originally written when the quill hit the sheepskin, it's the word argyrion, the, the Greek word silver. Or when Judas was plotting to betray Jesus, it says when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. Well, what were they going to give him? Argyrion, silver. So if you look at some ancient coins, here's a silver shekel, which was the most common Old Testament measure of a weight. It weighed 0.4 ounces of silver, which as of today is about $8.80 worth of silver in today's market. Uh, here's a half shekel, uh, which would have been about $4.40 at today's value. I think silver's around 22. I can't remember. Does that sound about right? Yeah. Um, and then uh, here's a silver denarius. A denarius was a Roman silver coin, which was equal to a laborer's daily wage. And again, it's roughly about... Uh, you know, $8 by today's value. And I think most of you probably know that in the United States, the quarter up until 1964 uh, was made of 90% real silver, uh, through 1964, I should say. And so uh, a quarter may look like it's worth uh, 25 cents, but in actuality, it's worth about $4. So if you find a quarter pre-1965, hang on to it. It's called dirty silver or, uh, you know, 90% silver, they, they call it. And when, when our kids were little, we used to do coin hunting where we would go to the bank and uh, give them $50 or $100 and get back rolls of quarters. And we'd sit out on the dining room table with a magnifying glass and a lamp and we'd carefully scroll through them. And we did that many, many times. And I think to my re recollection, only one time did we find a silver quarter. But boy, it was exciting when we did. And, uh, <laughs> And it was, it was fun. Uh, most people today have kind of hoarded them, and you don't find them very often. Uh, but notice uh, in Acts chapter 3, the, the lame man at the beautiful gate, silver and gold I do not have. You know, Peter did not say, you know, cash I do not have, or a gift card I do not have. He didn't even say a denarius I do not have. He said silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I will give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. In Matthew 26, going back to Judas's betrayal, Matthew's account, um, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? Well, what did they do? They counted out 30 pieces of worthless fiat coinage. No, of silver, of silver. So money matters because it's created by God. Real money was created by God. It's tangible, it's physical, it's in a limited supply. What we call money... It's just a piece of paper. It's a debt instrument in America. It's literally a Federal Reserve note. If you look at a typical, any denomination bill, you're going to see that it says right there on the face, Federal Reserve note. It's a debt instrument. Uh, we borrow money from the privately owned Federal Reserve, and they get rich off of it, which is why they're happy to keep printing money anytime uh, we need it. And that's why they love qualitative uh, easing. But it's nothing but paper, and it's a debt instrument. And when the economy crashes, it's not going to be worth uh, the paper it's written on. When the economy crashes, we may as well create our own money. You know, probably be worth uh, just about uh, as much. Um, uh, money matters also because it's a community necessity. Silver in the Bible was used for the purchase of real estate. Uh, for example, uh, in Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah, the field was purchased 
uh, at Anathoth for 17 shekels of silver, Jeremiah 32.9. Or in Genesis, the cave at Machpelah was bought by Abraham for 400 shekels of silver. We see lots of other examples in Scripture. And in fact, silver was also the basis of a dowry uh, or a bride purchase price, if you will. So uh, with that background of understanding how really money as it has come to be understood in the world of economics is really just a man-made creation, and it's a tool that the Luciferian elite are going to use uh, to advance their agenda, and, and I'm going to talk about that in just a second, particularly as it relates to America. Um, but the stage is definitely being set economically for the tribulation. We know the Bible says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And since the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and since evil is getting worse and worse, according to 2 Timothy 3.13, then it follows naturally that money, economics, are going to play a central role in the end times and the coming new world order. And indeed, that's what we see, as we shall see in just a moment. Uh, going back to the prophet Isaiah, 800 years or so before Christ, he's referring to Israel's wicked leaders. And he says, they are greedy dogs which never have enough. They are shepherds who cannot understand. They all look to their own way, everyone for his own gain from his own territory. And some things never change. Today, the wicked leaders of the world that are trying desperately to usher in a one-world system at the behest of Satan similarly never get enough. Uh, I think I've mentioned before that not everyone involved in the Luciferian conspiracy is aware that at the top levels it is, in fact, a satanic conspiracy. you got people at the mid-level and certainly at the lower levels that are just in it for the money. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's a, a great motivator. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Isaiah says, Come, one says, I will bring wine and we will fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. Tomorrow will be as today and much more abundant. Again, the Luciferian elite have that same attitude of more, 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 more. We can't get enough. And that leads me to the World Economic Forum uh, and Klaus Schwab. The volume of wealth that Schwab and his cronies and his organization have control over is unfathomable. And the tentacles of influence through this financial control grid are, are really unfathomable. In 1971, Schwab founded the European Management Forum, a non-governmental lobbying organization funded by the world's wealthiest corporations and individuals. And by 1987, the name was changed to the World Economic Forum. If you go to the WEF website, its mission is, quote, improving the state of the world by engaging business, political, academic, and other leaders of society to shape global, regional, and industry agendas. It's one of the world's most powerful elite uh, organizations. And every year, the forum brings together some 2,500 business leaders, international political leaders, economists, bank owners, journalists, all together at Davos, Switzerland, uh, to, uh, to talk about how they can use their money to advance uh, an agenda. And even though they claim that the average person is a stakeholder, the stakeholder just means useless breather in their terminology. So this really is, as I've talked a lot about, the Great Reset, which is uh, the Luciferian endgame. The Great Reset is really the great satanic reset. And this is something that predates COVID by many years. Uh, they've been working towards a Great Reset since long before COVID. Uh, a lot of people think 
that since Schwab uh, published his book, COVID-19, The Great Reset, that the term Great Reset came in about in conjunction with the pandemic. Not true. They just used the pre-planned pandemic that was pre-planned 22 years in advance and rolled out right on cue with all the necessary people in the positions they needed them in to roll it out uh, to advance this agenda. It was planned all along. And if you read that book, you notice that he's got five pillars of civilization that, according to the Luciferians, need to be reimagined. And right there in the middle is an economic reset, an economic reset. Uh, just a few quotes. Uh, we've looked at some of these in other contexts before. But he says this is going to require major institutional innovations, and among them, notice, a supranational institution to regulate finance at the global level. You cannot separate the Luciferian one-world agenda from the, the world economy. They go hand in glove. Uh, he said, the Great Reset will require a great deal of innovation and dramatic changes in our economies. And this is going to be a drastic change. Well, it absolutely will. As they've repeatedly said, by 2030, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy about it. Uh, it's just a major propaganda piece, uh, part of the eight uh, points of, of things, how the world will change by uh, 2030. They're introducing this at every level, including children's programming, uh, you know, pu public schools, and so forth. Uh, the reason they want you to own nothing is because that's how they're going to get control. If you have no means of exchange, such that you're not able to buy, sell, travel, anything like that, you're at their mercy. Uh, he said, notice disruption is coming and it will be both good and bad and major. He said things are going to be unrecognizable in just a few years. So how does the coming economic collapse where national sovereignty and regional economic markets give way to a global system, ultimately that will be run by the Antichrist, uh, how does that set the stage for the end times? Well, I think the first thing that we're going to see happen is the downfall of America. They, they've got to use an economic collapse, perhaps in conjunction, most likely in conjunction with several other weapons in their arsenal. But that's going to be the easiest way to get America to cry out to be saved from the boogeyman and join up with this international uh, economy. So I want to take a moment and review. I've talked about this in passing many times, but uh, not here on Prophecy Night. And I know we've got a different audience uh, each week. So I want to take a moment and talk about uh, the history of America and how we got to where we are today, especially in light of what's been happening over the last couple of days, which we're going to get to in just a second. Uh, but you got to remember back in 1620, when the pilgrims, as they came to be called, landed at Cape Cod, Massachusetts on November 21st, having come over on the Mayflower, they came seeking religious freedom. These were God-fearing, Bible-believing men and women and families that just wanted to, to serve God and worship Him. And they wanted to do so without, you know, interference from the king and from other, uh, you know, you know, influential uh, groups like the Freemasons. And so the pilgrims arrived on the shores of North America seeking a place to worship our creator. And thus, uh, God's fingerprints are all over the founding of America. And, and I've talked about that. But what people miss is the fact that Satan's fingerprints are all over the founding of America, too. 
because within about 150 years, revolutionary America would be an entirely different place with an entirely different agenda. From the earliest days of our country, Luciferians, Freemasons, and later the Illuminati that were founded in 1776, the same day, same year our country was founded, uh, would be seeking a new beachhead for their satanic agenda of a new world order. It's no accident that they referred to the discovery of America as the new world. And when they talk about the new world order, order refers to control, power, and authority from the top down. The plans of the Luciferians, however, were delayed when they vastly underestimated the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through believers in the early days of this country. They underestimated the power of God's Word, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of freedom-loving, God-fearing Americans, as they came to be called. And so for the first 125 years or so after the birthday of our country, uh, on July 4th, 1776, the Luciferians were playing catch-up. They were trying to advance their agenda, but God wouldn't have it, and God's people wouldn't have it. It was subtle. It was behind the scenes. It was secret, but they were working hard, uh, but they were getting further and further behind. As this great country of ours began to spread the gospel, people came to faith. They began to proclaim the word of God uh, in other parts of the world. So by the 20, turn of the 20th century, the Luciferians had had enough, and something had to be done if they were going to usher in this new world order. America, which they had envisioned as being a beachhead, had become a problem. It had become a, st a stumbling block in their efforts to usher in a complete global control grid. And so they intentionally set about uh, to solve that problem, and they did so uh, using a you know, classic uh, technique called order out of chaos. It's the Hegelian dialectic, you know, that 18th century, early 19th century German philosopher who, along with Immanuel Kant, is considered one of the most fundamental figures of modern Western thought, the Hegelian dialectic. And key players at this time were people like Van, the Vanderbilt dynasty, John Rockefeller, Andrew Carnegie, the Morgans, J.P. Morgan, Henry Ford. They began setting in motion an intentional plan to bring down America in order to usher in the New World Order as they had originally planned. So what is this Hegelian dialectic that uh, Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel uh, implemented or created? It's a philosophy that goes like this. Uh, it's often referred to as uh, problem, reaction, solution, or thesis, antithesis, synthesis, or divide and conquer, or controlled opposition. But the idea is we provide a problem, and then you provide a reaction that we could easily anticipate you're going to have. And then we stand at the ready to issue this pre-planned solution. So simple, it's genius, really. And let me give you a few examples. For example, if the agenda is a centralization of power, well, let's create a false flag terrorist attack, which makes you think you've got to give up all your rights to protect yourself from the boogeyman. And in the end, they get this removal of constitutional rights. Or let's say you want to shut down the alternative media especially in a country that has had more freedoms than any other country in the history of the world than ours. And people like me and, and, and you can stand up and speak freely and proclaim the Word of God. I mean, most places you try to share the gospel in front of your third grade public school and you'll be fired. But anyway, the American public school system has been pagan for centuries. It's amazing to me that parents still send their kids there, but uh, for at least the last 
1918. We'll say more about that in a moment. But if you want to shut down our freedom of speech, you create this narrative of fake news. You create the news that's fake, then you label it fake news and say it's a problem. And everybody goes, oh, you got to rescue us from fake news. We need Snopes and some of these other Luciferian-controlled websites to tell us what's real and what's not. And the result is online censorship, like we saw with Twitter and Facebook and YouTube. And, and they get what they wanted all along, the removal of free speech. Or one more, a couple more. Uh, let's say their agenda is a global tracking system. Well, here's an idea. Let's create a manufactured pandemic that is going to require people to have vaccine passports. And in the end, what that really accomplishes is the removal of individual rights and full-spectrum planetary control. Or if you want to have a one-world government, more for our point this evening, uh, you could institute an economic collapse, the answer to which is a global monetary system, which in turn removes national sovereignty. It's a very common technique. Again, it goes all the way back to Hegel. Even before it had a name, people were instinctively doing it, evil people trying to get their agenda across. It's much easier to get people uh, to go along willingly with what you're telling them than it is to drag them kicking and screaming. They can certainly do it by force, uh, but that's a lot more difficult, and it's much easier if you can get the sheep to just follow right in line. Remember what Rahm Emanuel said uh, during the Great Recession of 2008? He said, you never let a serious crisis go to waste. And what I mean by that, it's an opportunity to do things you think you could not do before. And it's kind of interesting that that quote came to my mind while we appear to be on the brink of another ep economic uh, crisis. But, but Rahm Emanuel didn't create that thought. He was just parroting this long-standing strategy from the globalist playbook that, as I said, goes back to Hegel. Uh, he's not even the first person to put it in print. Uh, we could go back to Niccolo Machiavelli, who, who actually used that phrase in 1513, even before... Uh, the uh, Friedrich Hegel. He said, quote, never waste the opportunity offered by a good crisis. And then in the 1940s, as World War II was winding down, Winston Churchill repeated that idea. And more recently, Saul Alinsky, in his famous 1972 book, Rules for Radicals, talked about it extensively as a technique for getting people to do what you want. And I believe as we look around us, we certainly see the stage being set for this new world order, a cashless society, a one world leader that will ultimately be the Antichrist after the rapture. Uh, and they are manufacturing crises to further their agenda. So the official narrative, as illustrated by this History Channel eight-hour four-part docudrama back in 2012, is that the likes of Vanderbilt, Rockefeller, Carnegie, J.P. Morgan, Henry Ford were all uh, building America. Uh, and that they revolutionized modern society. Oh, they revolutionized it already. But a more accurate title for this uh, uh, documentary would have been uh, The Men Who Tore Down America, because that's exactly what they set in motion to do uh, at the behest of the Luciferian conspirators. Uh, John D. Rockefeller said, The ability to deal with people is as purchasable a commodity as sugar or coffee. And note, I will pay more for that than for any other under the sun. In other words, his driving passion was to use money 
to control people. And that's exactly what he did. He bought his way into influencing just about every major industry in our country, such as the medical industry. He bought the medical schools like Johns Hopkins, Stanford, and Harvard Medical Schools by purchasing the rights to put people on the board that were under his thumb. He bought control of the newly forming pharmaceutical industry, which changed medicine forever and created an entirely different way of looking at things called Western medicine. Uh, he completely took over government school, uh, schools, which uh, although beginning in the mid-19th century, there were sectors in America that were starting to have compulsory laws. It didn't become fully compulsory in every state at that time until 19. Uh, 18. And uh, so, you know, the, the idea was go directly to school or we're going to arrest you. And by the way, if you think that's an overstatement or just some clever meme, check out this political cartoon from 1874, December the 12th. Uh, you know, by 1918, compulsory government schooling laws had been enacted. Here, these people are actually mocking the fact that the government wants to force the kids into school, and they're portraying it by showing police arresting this young man who wasn't in school. So all along, society in general understood the dangers of taking children away from their families, plugging them into a small room with 30 other kids the same age, which right away, that should tell you that's part of the Luciferian agenda, because in what other real-world experience do you ever find yourself in the same context with 29 peers your same age. Name one. Never. Never. But you put kids whom the Bible says, you know, foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. So let's call them what they are. Fools. No offense. Uh, you put 30 fools in a room together for eight hours a day for 13 years once they implemented kindergarten. And, and they wait 100 years and wonder what happens. That's exactly the what they did and, what, and how they did it. Uh, this is uh, John Taylor Gatto, who died in 2018. His book, Dumbing Us Down, The Hidden Curriculum of Compulsory Schooling. Highly recommend you have it in your library. He said, government schooling is the most radical adventure in history. It kills the family by monopolizing the best times of childhood and teaching disrespect for home and parents. Another whistleblower was Charlotte Iserby who died, uh, I think it was 2021, uh, and uh, she wrote uh, the incredible expose called The Deliberate Dumbing Down of America. She worked in Reagan's Department of Education. Remember, the U.S. Department of Education, if you're old enough like me to remember the Carter and Reagan transition, Reagan campaigned in 1980 on abolishing the newly established Department of Education. And as I document in my Spirit of the Antichrist books, once he got elected, not only did he not abolish it, he tripled the funding for it. And when she found out what the real agenda was behind the U.S. Department of Education, she blew the whistle and got fired by the Reagan administration. Uh, she was the Undersecretary of Education. But anyway, fascinating lady, fascinating book. You can get a, a public domain copy of it in PDF. It's very thick. You can also buy the printed copy if you want, but it's available on the Internet. Uh, and she traveled the country for years, the rest of her life, speaking about the dangers of compulsory government schooling. Uh, Rockefeller took over the textbook industry and the publishing industry in general, but specifically the textbook 
publishing industry. Uh, he took over the finance industry with the establishment of the Federal Reserve in 1913. I talked about this recently in the context of the global control grid, but remember the Federal Reserve is private. It's no more federal than Federal Express. It's owned by six families. We recently, as I mentioned, had the chance to go out there and took some pictures. Uh, interesting that you can see the geoengineering and solar radiation management and uh, atmospheric aerosol spray there in the background. Uh, not surprising uh, at all. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, we, we can put up several quotes of people talking about the importance of financial control in ushering in the New World Order. Uh, Carol Quigley, who I've talked extensively about and uh, talked extensively in the books about, uh, he was the historian for the Council on Foreign Relations, and his book, Tragedy and Hope, really served as a uh, kind of a, a grand expose and blowing the whistle on what they'd been doing, so much so that they destroyed all the copies of it at first. It eventually resurfaced, and you can now get this 1,300-page, 8-pound tome. But he said it, their aim, the aim of this power center, is nothing less than to create a world system of financial control, that's my emphasis there, in private hands, able to dominate the political system of each country and, indeed, the economy of the world as a whole. David Rockefeller said in his memoirs, uh, some people even believe we are part of a secret cabal working against the best interests of the United States, characterizing my family and me as internationalists and of conspiring with others around the world to build what? A more integrated global, political, and economic structure. One world. And then he just proudly and boastfully says, well, if that's the charge, I'm, I stand guilty and I'm proud of it. He also said the world is now more sophisticated and prepared to march towards a world government. How does he describe that? The supranational sovereignty of an intellectual elite and, notice he adds, world bankers is far preferable to the national autodetermination practiced in the, the past centuries. In other words, national sovereignty is a thing uh, of the past. Another Klaus Schwab quote, he said, the tools of the Fourth Industrial Revolution enable new forms of surveillance. We've talked a lot about that, but notice that other phrase tucked away in there. And other means of control. By that, he means financial control. In order to roll out this financial control, there's got to be a crisis. And by the way, they don't have to be watching you to control you. Surveillance is a big part of it. It's, a, it's something that we see the Antichrist is going to need in order to mimic God and try to take control of the world. God doesn't need that because God's omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. He knows and sees everything. Where can I go from his presence, David said, right? But the Antichrist doesn't have such powers, and so he's going to need surveillance. But I just want to point out, you don't have to be watched to be controlled. There are other ways to do that, and that's through economy. So could we be seeing the beginning of the downfall of America right now in 2023 in our day. Obviously, it's been a slippery slope for a long time. As I said, it began in earnest in the early 1900s, and it's gotten worse and worse and worse ever since. We see attacks on every side, attacks with the gender surrender movement, with the sexual perversion movement, with uh, the you know attacks on the Constitution, on the rights to privacy and the rights to keep and bear arms and the rights to speedy trial and fair trial and so forth. But to me, the economy has always been a big one because, you know, as I've been writing and speaking about the Luciferian conspiracy for 16 years now, uh, I've followed uh, the state of the economy and recognized for some time that it is just 
uh, already gone. I mean, it's, it's already a corpse being kept alive on life support. And when they're ready, all they have to do is push a button and it will all uh, fall apart. So let's get into some of the recent news that I think, again, I'm not a prophet. I'm not claiming to be a prophet, nor am I setting dates. But I tell you, what we've seen recently sure to me smacks of the beginnings of a major economic uh, collapse. And it goes right in line with everything else we've been seeing that I talk about in the two books uh, in terms of their march toward totalitarianism and the one world system. Uh, their timeline, their own stated agendas and deadlines. This seems to be what we might be sat, ha see happening. So this is from actually March 8th, so a few days before uh, the uh, Silicon Valley Bank collapse and the others that followed shortly thereafter over the last few days. But this is uh, Fox Business interviewing Larry McDonald, a very well-known and prestigious economist, from the Bear Traps report, and listen to what he has to say. Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell back on Capitol Hill today for day two of his testimony. He will be in front of the House Financial Services Committee this morning. Stocks tumbled yesterday after his comments that rates may have to go higher to rein in inflation. Watch this. The latest economic data have come in stronger than expected. If the totality of the data were to indicate <clears throat> that faster tightening is warranted, we'd be prepared to increase the pace of rate hikes. Joining me now is the Bear Traps Report founder and New York Times bestselling author, Larry McDonald. Larry, it's great to see you. Thanks so much for being here. I'm going to get your take on Jay Powell yesterday. What did you make of the speech? Well, it's kind of like uh, he's overcooking the goose. Um, you know, they're playing catch up. And while they were doing quantitative easing in 2021, uh, inflation started to rage and now they're trying to catch up. Our, Maria, our 21 Lehman systemic risk indicators that look at equity and credit point to the, one of the highest probabilities of a crash in the stock market looking out 60 days. Wow, 60 days? You're saying you're going to see it? We're going to see a crash in the stock market within 60 days? Yes, because um, the, the withdrawal of capital from the middle class families is so spectacular. Uh, for every 1%, Increase now, a lot of these economists and Wall Street people they throw around all oh, the Fed's hiking basis, you know, 100 basis points, 50 basis points. The bottom line is for every one percent increase in rates, and we've done almost five percent now, uh, every one percent takes 50 billion dollars out of the pockets of middle class families. Uh, auto loans right now are approaching 14 percent, almost 20 percent of auto loans are a thousand a month, and so the middle class families are getting hammered here and so the consumer pressure is you know violent but on, on the high end you know the, the wealthy are doing well with excess savings and higher interest rates yeah well look i'm glad you brought up rates because we're talking about the two-year above five percent today mortgage rates uh just out moments ago the 30-year fixed rate up again now to 6.79 percent last week i mean larry the last time we saw mortgage rates shoot up this way we saw real demand destruction people were walking away from their mortgages a new fannie mae survey finds americans are pessimistic about their personal financial outlook 31 percent of americans said that they expect their personal finances to improve over the next year but but then on top of that you look at the underperformance of the regional banks so your regional banks are your classic canary in the coal mine they're underperforming the S&P by like six, seven, eight percent in the last six, nine months a year. 
So the regional banks are telling you something really bad is happening under the surface in commercial real estate, auto loans, residential. There's really massive cracks under the surface, and that's why the market probably goes down 10, 20%, maybe 30% the next 60 days. 10, 20, 30% in the next 60 days. So many, and that was just a portion of the, uh, the 10-minute segment. That's about a three-minute clip. But so many things that were really astounding to me. 20% of auto loans in existence are $1,000 a month. Are you kidding me? And then I hadn't been keeping up with the mortgage rates, but almost at 7%. And, you know, unreal uh, what's, what's happening. Uh, some more headlines. Here's... Uh, uh, related to the Silicon Valley Bank. Here's the Daily Mail. This is from March 9th. By the way, that clip was from less than a week ago. So the Jerome Powell, uh, when he raised the race, that was one week ago today. The next day, Fox News had Larry McDonald and was talking about this. And then this is from the day after that on March 9th. The turmoil at Silicon Valley Bank triggers market panic. I wonder if Larry McDonald felt like he... he misjudged the 60-day time period by about 59 days. Um, but four biggest U.S. banks lose a staggering $52 billion in valuation, and the Dow drops 540 points. Uh, here's a CNBC. Here's how the second biggest bank collapse in U.S. history happened in just 48 hours. Uh, Yahoo Finance. From Santa Clara to Shoreditch, a, a part of London, the Eastern District of London, from Santa Clara to Shoreditch, uh, SVB fallout spreads around the world. Uh, here's CNN from March 12th, so two days ago. Uh, $620 billion in unrealized losses signals larger banking problem, you think? Uh, here's uh, Fox Business again. This is from uh, March 11th, so this would be Saturday, I believe. Billionaire Bill Ackman on the Silicon Valley bank collapse, government has 48 hours to fix this irreversible mistake. And, you know, by the way, when, when Biden came out and said, we're going to just buy out all these, you know, startups and all these people that lost their money in, in Silicon Valley bank, that's just the same old, same old. We don't have the money to do it, as I'm going to show you in just a second. But when you print your money, you know, you, you, can, you can do what you want, but that's not the answer. It's just a delaying tactic until they're ready to pull the trigger, to pull the plug, I might say, using the uh, life support uh, metaphor. Some Silicon Valley Bank customers are struggling to wire funds out of the bank. Uh, here's NPR. Silicon Valley Bank failure could wipe out, quote, a whole generation of startups. Uh, that's from, uh, again, March 11th, so Saturday. Stephon, the article says, Stefan Kalb was in the middle of a meeting around 1 p.m. on Thursday when a fellow company executive sent him a panicked Slack message. Uh, Slack is a messaging app, I guess. Do you know what's happening at SVB? Kalb, the CEO and co-founder of Seattle-based food management startup Shelf Engine, that's the name of their company, had been following news of a bank run at Silicon Valley Bank with droves attempting to pull out $42 billion from the bank on Thursday alone on fears that it was teetering on the brink. The bank was on firm financial footing on Wednesday, but the following day it was underwater. For Shelf Engine, this company, a 40-person startup founded in 2015 that uses artificial intelligence to help grocery stores reduce food waste, this was a major problem. Not only did Silicon Valley Bank help the company process checks and payments, but all of the startup's cash 
was locked up in the bank. So Kalb sprung into action. He and his team quickly opened an account at J.P. Morgan Chase, talk about out of the frying pan into the fire, uh, and attempted to wire transfer every last penny out of Silicon Valley Bank. He says, quote, Unfortunately, our wire was not honored, and our money is still at Silicon Valley Bank, he said in an interview. We woke up this morning hoping the money would be in that J.P. Morgan bank account, but it was not. He declined to provide the exact amount, but he noted that Shelf Engine has raised more than $60 million from investors. And he said, quote, it was a very large sum of money that they lost. So uh, here is another a clip uh, of an investor. Let's see what he has to say. So that was, in fact, that Stephen Kelp from Shelf Engine. He's 37 years old. But uh, you can kind of begin to get a sense for the trickle-down effect. So don't, don't buy the narrative in thinking that, okay, we just throw more fiat money at it and everything's okay. Uh, we've seen this before. Uh, again, I don't, I'm not on the inside of the Luciferian agenda, so I don't know if, in fact, this is the, the next phase or if this is just another dry run or trial balloon or whatever. Uh, obviously, 2008, a lot of people thought maybe that was the, the time, um, and they kind of strung, it, strung us along uh, for another 15 years. So who's to say, but it's definitely a significant uh, turn of events. Uh, this article from CNN Business uh, lists several uh, companies, uh, this again from Saturday, that held money at Silicon Valley Bank and aren't sure if they'll recover their funds, including, by the way, Roku. Uh, which is, had 26% of its cash was in that bank. Uh, here's CNN from yesterday. Bank stocks plummet as Biden tries to rally confidence. So you're aware, I'm sure, that the, the stock market tumbled yesterday. Uh, President Biden goes on TV, tries to soften the bank banking system blow after the historic Silicon Valley bank collapse again yesterday. Here's CNN. First Republic Bank stock plunges now as fears about regional banks persist. Again, yesterday. Uh, this also from yesterday. Fox News economist issues ominous warning about SVP, SVP collapse and Biden spending policies. He says it's just the tip of the iceberg. Just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, Yahoo Finance 
SVB fallout spreads around the world from London to Singapore. And then just this morning, Moody's cuts outlook on U.S. banking system to negative from stable, citing the rapidly deteriorating operating environment of banks in the United States. Uh, and here's CNN Business. Moody's sees harder times ahead for all U.S. banks again from today and puts six on the downgrade watch list. Uh, I woke up uh, yesterday with this email uh, with a PDF attached from one of the banks that where we have some funds, a Vectra Bank, and it basically was just a comfort letter saying, hey, we know you're worried about all that's going on and all you're hearing in the news, but don't worry, we're solvent, we're good, you're, you're good. Don't come rushing in to take your money out of the bank today, uh, essentially is what they were trying to, to say. So it really is uh, a code blue you know, situation, but it has been for some time. In fact, I used this very graphic, uh, which has disappeared from the internet. I couldn't find this meme. I had to go back to an old presentation I did 12 years ago to find it. Uh, it has been for some, for some time. Uh, again, it's just a question of when do they decide to call the time of death and move into the next phase? That's what I think we need to be uh, prepared for. Uh, this is, uh, uh, you know, our news article even using that same phrase. This is from during the pandemic in 2020. Uh, Federal Reserve ramps up help to the U.S. economy that's on life support. Why is it on life support? Well, let's talk about the national debt. And I love this famous quote by Republican Everett uh, Dirksen. He's no longer living, but... He's for a Republican of Illinois. He said, he said on the floor of Congress, a billion here and a billion there, and pretty soon you're talking about real money. <laughs> and that's part of the problem, is that the people in Washington that are all under the control of the Luciferian system really have lost complete touch with any sense of uh, reality. Uh, so this I grabbed yesterday. I, I meant to grab one today, but it's probably only slightly higher. But you can go to usdebtclock.org, and you can see the U.S. national debt which is now nearly $32 trillion. That's the debt. Deficit's another whole matter. But, uh, you know, it's, it's $32 trillion. And by the way, that does not take into consideration any of the unfunded liabilities, which many analysts say if you factor those in, you're talking about a debt that's in the quadrillions. The quadrillions. And uh, to put that... Uh, and by the way, as of 2023, in February, the national debt is about 120% of the United States' GDP. So just think about that. So uh, here's, to, here's a graphic uh, that uh, kind of shows historically. It uh, starts out back in, you know, 1800 or so, and then sort of traces it, and you can see it was Flat, it was flat, it was flat, it was flat. And then what starts to happen right around 1900? What did I say? Right around the turn of the century, the establishment of the Federal Reserve and the intentional plan by the Luciferians to bring down this country. Now, I don't want to just flood you with numbers here, but I want you to track with me, and I won't necessarily read all these, but I want to just start with, well, let's start with 1940, World War II era. National debt was $43 billion. A decade later, it was $257 billion, with a B. 
1960, it was $286 billion. By 1970, $371 billion. By 1980, when Ronald Reagan took office, it was $900 billion, our debt. By the end of Reagan's term, it was tripled, $3.2 trillion national debt. A decade later, in the year 2000, $5.6 trillion. Uh, it steadily goes up uh, $1 to $2 trillion a year. Uh, let's go from 2000 to 2010. By 2010, in the Barack Obama era, it was $13.5 trillion of national debt. By 2020, it doubled again, $26.9 trillion. And today it's at nearly $32 trillion. It is going straight up. Look at that graph. That, that is completely unsustainable. Uh, they, they, they've got to know something we don't. Because every time the government votes to you know, raise the debt ceiling, it's it's just all funny business. It's it's just you know it's like you're pouring water into a cup that's got a crack in the bottom, and you know that you know it ran out again. Let me pour some more in it. It's not going to have any effect. Here's a uh, just a pictorial survey of just the significance of this amount of money, which I don't think any of us can really comprehend. But here's a uh, hundred dollars. Here's $10,000. Here's $1 million. Here's uh, $100 million. Here's $1 billion. Remember, we're talking $32 trillion is our debt. $1 trillion. You know, if you spent $1 million a day, from the day Jesus was born, you could not spend $1 trillion. You would spend about $700 billion. And we're talking $32 trillion. By the way, speaking of $700 billion, that's the same amount the banks got in 2008 during the last bailout. You'd have to spend a million dollars a day since the day of Christ's birth to get to that amount of money. Uh, here is a comparison of a trillion dollars to an American football field. You can see a Boeing 747 uh, at the end of the field there. Um, you can see the White House with both wings of the White House there. And then this is uh, the... $30 trillion debt, and again, you could go to that website. Uh, I don't think I have it on the screen. but uh, And by the way, the first version of this particular graphic, they were intending to kind of surround. You can't really see it because it's so small, but that's the Statue of Liberty in the middle there, just to give you some perspective. They were intending to just surround her, but it's so rapid. That was back in 2012 when it was $16 trillion. It's doubled in the 10 years since then. And so they just keep coming out, and she gets further and further away, which is somewhat fitting when you think about it. So, you know, raising taxes will not solve the problem. Uh, it's just not going to happen. We could double the, ta double the taxes on the top 25% of wage earners in America. 
and it would only bring in another $1.3 trillion. So just, uh, just the, the enormity of this. And then this is one that I only put up here because uh, I wanted to highlight this little fact right here. This is the U.S. debt versus the you know, gross domestic product. And you see how uh, within the last few years, we've, we've got more debt than we do you know, gross domestic product. And, and now it's not even, it's not even close. Uh, here's uh, CNN uh, politics. Uh, the U.S. has reached its debt limit. What comes next? Well, that's the question. What comes next? Um, here's, uh, you know, the IMF, International Monetary Fund, warning the worst is yet to come for the global economy. And inflation, which is another whole uh, subject that is relevant to the state of the economy. Uh, I went to the inflation calculator and I put in if in 1913 you made you, you purchased an item for $1 in 2023 that same item would cost $30.22 which is a 3000% uh, increase uh, 1913 was the year the federal reserve was founded interesting uh, this is from the world economic forum which is always a good uh, indication of what's in their mind. Of course, they're telegraphing everything they're doing. Uh, so this is more of a blueprint than it is a prediction. Uh, but they got together, you know, you know, leading experts and world leaders and so forth to come together. And they do this every year. And they come up with the Global Risks Report. Uh, this is based on a survey that they do called Global Risks Perception Survey, the GRPS. And this is from 2022 to 2023. And here's what they say the top five risks are. Energy supply crisis, cost of living crisis, rising inflation, cyber attacks on critical infrastructure, and a food supply crisis. Others that are outside of the top five but were listed as a concern by the World Economic Forum include the failure to meet net zero targets. In other words, people aren't going to comply with their global warming uh, treachery, weaponization of economic policy, weakening of human rights, a debt crisis, and this was last year, remember, and failure of non-food supply chains. The global economy 2023, how countries around the world are tackling this cost of living crisis. This is from January of this year. Here's uh, GM offers buyouts. This is from today to majority of U.S. salaried workers. They're trying to get rid of their, you know, employees because they can't pay them anymore. So who do you start with? You start with the salaried employees. More than half today were offered a package today. Food prices are sky high. I don't have to tell you that. Beef prices are sky high. Gas prices are sky high. So how does this coming economic collapse set the stage for the end times? Well, uh, they've got to bring order out of chaos. They've got to destroy so they can recreate and build back better. By better, they mean in their own, you know, way, in their own perception. Better for them, not better in a vacuum. Uh, but there's another way that I think it's setting the stage for the end times, and that it relates to the Antichrist 
and how money will play a role in the tribulation period. Um, it's helpful to understand that any economic collapse is really just a transfer of wealth. You know, as individuals, banks, companies, families, corporations, and nations lose their wealth and collapse, where does that money go? It doesn't actually disappear. It's just transferred. And as I was putting together this presentation, I by, quite by chance came across this uh, hilarious clip from three years ago. You've probably seen it. I, I oftentimes miss some of the memes that go around because I'm not on social media. So if you've seen it, maybe it won't be as funny for you. But I thought it was uh, hilarious. This is a family playing Monopoly, and this little kid uh, loses all his money. And listen to how he responds. Luciferians take all your money and force you to be beholden to them to live and eat and travel and breathe. That's the worst part of the game. Well, in the end times, Babylon is going to be the seat of the Antichrist's control. Here's an artist's rendering of the Tower of Babel, Babel uh, Genesis 11. That's where Babylon gets its name. Remember, we've talked about Nimrod and all of that. Uh, this is modern-day Babylon. It has not been rebuilt uh, but someday it will be. And here's an artist's rendering of Babylon the Great in the tribulation period. I recommend my good friend Andy's short little booklet that he just published in 2021 called Babylon, the Bookends of Prophetic History. He's always giving shout-outs to me. I'll get people that go online and buy our books at notbyworks.org, and they'll say, yeah, Andy said this was a good book, so I'm going to return the favor. And That's a great one, a very easy read, and it's a biblical overview of the role Babylon plays both in the beginning of history, Genesis 11, and in the end time. So who is Babylon? Well, I believe it's a code word, if you will, for the Antichrist system. It certainly does include a literal geographic Babylon, and that's where the Antichrist political headquarters will be. Uh, but it also refers to the one world religion, including the apostate church that the beast, the Antichrist, will use to deceive the world. That's referenced in Revelation 17. And then Revelation 18, which we're going to look at here in a second, refers to the economic seat of power. And uh, I believe that if the rapture were to happen today or any time before the United States does indeed collapse, then probably that you know, economic Babylon will be New York City, which is currently the seat of economic power in the world. That's where the globalists emanate from economically. Not the only place, but it's certainly kind of the linchpin to it all. Uh, if the, the uh, Lord Terry's is coming and the, uh, America does in fact collapse before the rapture, uh, which I've said for many years, I've commented in prophecy conferences, has it ever occurred to you as an American citizen that you might actually be raptured as a Chinese citizen? It's very possible. I mean, we have nothing biblically that guarantees the sustained you know, ability of America all the way up to the rapture. You know? uh, so uh, who's to say? 
but let's take a look a little bit closer at Revelation 18 and the role that money plays in uh, the end times. So Revelation 18, he cried mightily with a loud voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. That repetition there indicates both the guarantee that God's judgment is going to happen at the second coming at the Battle of Armageddon against the Antichrist and Babylon, but also that it's going to happen quickly. Uh, this is what we call a prolepsis or a proleptic announcement where in the text it's announcing something as if it's happened, but because from the view of the vision that's what it looks like, but it actually hasn't happened and won't happen until uh, the end times. Uh, it's basically, as uh, Greek expert Mount says, the prophetic way of declaring that the great purpose of God in triumphing over evil is in fact a fait accompli, a fact already accomplished. Uh, so look at the description here of Babylon. It has become a dwelling place of demons by the end of the seven years, a prison for every foul spirit, a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, using a, a sexual metaphor there for the fact that all these kings have, have willingly succumbed to the one world system. Exactly the way Rockefeller and Kissinger and Zbigniew Brzezinski and others have said it would happen for America, that someday there would be some threat so real and so dangerous that we would simply roll over and say, save us, new world order. And that's exactly what the picture that's painted here in Revelation 18. Now, the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. Uh, so Babylon's going to be a prison for every unclean spirit and a place of demons. That phrase, unclean and hated birds, is a figure of speech referring to desolation. What, what do you have when you have rotting, decaying flesh? You have, you know, bu uh, buzzards and birds of prey circling overhead. He goes on, and I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive her plagues. Here he's addressing believers. By that time in the tribulation, there will be untold numbers of believers who believe the gospel after the rapture. Many of those will be beheaded for the faith, but some of them will survive by hiding out. And he's telling them at this point, you need to separate from anything and everything having to do with the Babylon system, the one world system emanating uh, from Babylon. As uh, Tom Constable uh, puts it, in that day, people will do well not to have the attitude of Lot's wife, who hankered after another worldly sitter, city, Sodom, and of course, look what happened to her. Right. Uh, and this is an important principle for us as well, by the way, even prior to the rapture. We won't be here during the tribulation, but we do not and should not succumb to the enticements of the globalists because the, everything they're doing now is just setting the stage for what's going to be realized more fully after the rapture. We need to remember that not all that glitters is gold. He goes on, In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure, give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen and am no widow, and I will not see sorrow. Well, therefore, her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord God who judges her. Babylon will collapse suddenly at the end of the tribulation period like the World Trade Center towers in New York City did in 2001 due to the bombs that were strategically placed throughout the building as testified under oath by more than 100 New York City firefighters and first responders. The fall of Babylon 
however, will not be at the hands of the Luciferian elites trying to pull off a false flag. It'll be the strength of the Lord God that accomplishes this destruction. And he will use supernatural means to make that happen. He goes on, the kings of the earth, you know, these world leaders, he mentions three of them, kings, merchants, three groups, the kings or world leaders, the merchants, and the seafaring tradesmen, sailors, and passengers are going to see this city burning from a distance, and they will cry out in torment, alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, in one hour, your judgment will come. And he says, the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Uh, by the way, for the sake of time, I won't read all of these, but notice that one of the things they're trading, he lists uh, some 29 items that they're selling, uh, including men, you know, people, the souls of men. Their souls, remember, in, in Greek doesn't mean the immaterial part of man. It just means life. So they're selling lives. Slavery is what they're doing, basically. Uh, and then he says, the light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore, and the voice of the bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, and notice this, by your sorcery, all the nations were deceived. That's the word pharmakeia. And I talk about this in chapter 9 of volume 1 of Spirit of the Antichrist. You know, the use of pharmaceuticals is by no means new. In the grand scheme of 6,000 years of human history, the concept of making consumable chemical potions for the purpose of altering or controlling human behavior has happened since the ancient times in the Near East. And by the time of the Greco-Roman period, this practice was widespread, especially in pagan cultures. Pharmakeia. It's where we get our English word pharmacy. It means the use of drugs or the practice of drugging. It's, uh, in, the, in the Bible, it's used in the context of ritualistic satanic practices and casting spells. It's used twice in the New Testament, Galatians 5.20 and Revelation 18.23, right here on the screen. A related word, pharmakon, refers not to the practice of drugging, also used in Revelation, pharmakon, but to the actual drug itself, sorceries. So, uh, there have been overtures about a one-world currency for decades. This is from back in 1988, the cover article of The Economist magazine. Get ready for world currency. Right now, they're doing their best to roll it out through the central bank digital currencies, which we talked about a few sessions ago in the context of global control and full-spectrum control. But that's exactly what we read in Revelation 13, that the Antichrist is going to use the, his false prophet, the second-in-command, to oversee commerce and make sure that no one can buy or sell unless the government gives them permission. Central bank digital currencies are going to need some type of Hegelian-like event to get us to get on board. It's going to have to be some unfreezing event that says the traditional way of uh, handling money and dealing with economies it has failed. Enter digital currencies and everyone will come on board. It'll be a solution, not some type of forced control grid. But that's exactly uh, what it uh, will be, a tool of total enslavement. Everything's going to be tokenized. Your carbon footprint, your social credit score, your medical status, even your wash water usage on private property. They're going to give you tokens based on how much you comply. And if you're a good boy or girl, then you'll be able to buy enough groceries or enough gas or whatever you need to travel, uh, if you can even travel. Uh, remember, uh, 
The United States is falling right in line with the World Economic Forum's plan for a global central bank digital currency. Last year, on March 9th, Biden issued an executive order uh, related to CBDCs and, and it required all of the federal governments that had any remote you know, relationship to this economic uh, change that's coming to issue reports. He only gave them six months to do so, but the collective result of that six-month study was they need to completely re-engineer all of our financial and payment systems. They're telling us what they're going to do. This is a meeting that was held in October of last year, October 14, 2022, by the World Economic Forum. Uh, many key world leaders attended, such as Her, Her Majesty Queen Maxima of the Netherlands, uh, the uh, uh, Managing Director of the International Monetary Fund and the Deputy Managing Director, Bo Lee. We'll say more about him in a second. Uh, who you see on the screen here is the head of the Bank for International Sediments Innovation Hub. And listen to what she said at this meeting. CBDCs must be combined in a package with global digital IDs. You have to push societies into new equilibriums because they're not going to come uh, willingly. And how are they going to push us? Through another type of false flag uh, problem reaction solution technique. Uh, Bo Lee, whom I mentioned uh, a minute ago, uh, said this. Uh, CBDCs can allow government agencies and private sector players to program, to create smart contracts, and to allow targeted policy functions. For example, welfare payments, for example, consumption coupons, for example, food stamps. By programming these CBDCs can precisely be precisely targeted for what kind of people can own and for what kind of us this money can be utilized for. I actually transcribed that from the video of him saying that. That's why it's, it wasn't from a book or something he wrote. Uh, but notice they're talking about what kind of people. So you got to be the right kind of person to have the rights that you thought were inalienable, as God tells us they are. Uh, so he goes on, CBDCs will be beneficial for controlling people socially. And then he has the gall to say, unashamedly, institutions can take advantage of the data by following the model of the Chinese Communist Party. And he went on to extol the virtues of social credit scoring. Uh, so let me close out with the one world system and the coming economic collapse. What can we do? First of all, be prepared. You know, that's a biblical principle. You've heard me say it many, many times. Proverbs 22, 3, paraphrasing, a prudent man foresees the difficulties ahead and prepares for them. New King James says, a wise man sees trouble coming and prepares for it. The simpleton glows blindly on and suffers the consequences. Proverbs 21, 31, the horse is prepared for the day of battle. Yes, we know deliverances of the Lord, but we still prepare the horses. So are you prepared? Uh, one of the main principles I think that we need to really own and, 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 and come to grips with uh, that uh, I've been saying for years, ever since we woke up uh, to the reality of uh, this uh, satanic agenda, is that if you can't touch it, you don't own it. You know, if your portfolio and your uh, finances are still tied to dots and dashes on somebody's server somewhere, you need to break free from thinking that simply by logging into an app or going online to your computer, you, you see your wealth. Because just like that, that can go away. If you can't touch it, you don't own it. If they could hack into the NSA servers, if they can control elections like they've been doing for decades where they have selections and not elections because of the digital vote tabulation machines, 
they can certainly hack into financial accounts. Uh, so I'm not a financial advisor, and this is certainly not financial advice, but here are some seven suggestions uh, that I think uh, we need to consider. Uh, one of them is to make a plan now. You know, we, we have enough of the telegraphing of the Luciferian elites that we really don't need to wonder anymore. The time to act is now. Make a plan. Secondly, liquidate as much of your digital portfolio as possible. Again, I'm not an advisor. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just, just my suggestions. But you should only leave in intangible, you know, digit, you know, dashes and O's on a computer screen, dashes and dots, what you're prepared to lose. And that's going to be different for every person. You know, you, every situation is different. You got to have, you got to play the game the way it's played. If you want to make your mortgage payment or you want to, you know, pay your, you know, kids tuition at school. I mean, I can't show up at Grand Canyon University with a big old bag of Federal Reserve notes or even a big old bag of silver or gold. Uh, they'll say, uh, sir, go to such and such dot edu and click this and then you can make your payment, right? Uh, so obviously, you know, that number is different for everybody. That's why I say as much as possible. Buy tangible commodities. Convert the intangible fake wealth into things that you can see and feel and touch. And that list is lengthy. Um, we have that preparedness document that we worked on a couple of years ago that we give out for free that lists all kinds of scenarios and all kinds of supplies. It's 12 pages long. Happy to email it to you if anybody asks. Just let me know. Um, but, you know, there are things like obviously food, uh, precious metals, supplies, ammunition, things that you might need in the case of a crisis, things to, for warmth and shelter, things for you, you, you name it. Uh, but, but they're tangible. That's what you want. Uh, develop a community support system. Um, you know, uh, it's going to be very important to be able to trade service for service and value for value. Um, you, know, you need to think through, what if there's no doctor? What if there's no dentist? What if I need an engineer? What if I need an electrician? You know, what if I need help with something? Uh, because if you're going to survive, if the Lord doesn't come back soon, and we're going to survive this transition, we're going to have to be prepared to suffer. If you're not going to play the game and sign on to the digital ID card and the digital system, you know, it's going to be tough sledding. So we're going to have to think ahead and think how we'll be able to do that. Number six, prep. Uh, become self-sufficient. That does not mean stop trusting God. As I just showed you, biblical preparedness is part of God's word, right? So uh, they're not mutually exclusive. We, we prepare the horse for battle, but we also trust the Lord. Uh, and then number seven, stockpile supplies. Because, uh, you know, it's, it's not enough to have a list and then kind of check a few of them off. You need as many as you can because you just don't know uh, where... Uh, things are going to, uh, you know, end up and how long we might be in limbo, right? Now, we hope the Lord comes back soon, today, Maranatha, uh, and then, uh, you know, then things will begin to unfold just as the Bible says they will after that next great prophetic event. But what if he doesn't? What if he doesn't? Preparedness is a good principle in general, regardless of this, where we are in God's plan of the ages, uh, just for natural disasters and you know, other problems and, and trials. So uh, the stage is definitely being set economically. 
no question. Will they reverse course and delay, and will we see another similar, uh, you know, uh, things play out the way they did in 2008? Possibly. Who knows? But I just feel like on every, from every direction, they are checking the boxes and trying to get things ready for that final moment, whatever that is. And remember, the key to that is the downfall of America. We are standing in their way. Too many Christians, too many gun owners, too many freedom-loving people. So they've got to do something to get us out of the way. Just a couple of quick resources before I open the floor to questions here. Um, uh, this is an interview that just posted today uh, with uh, the Biblical Citizens Let's Roll radio program uh, called They're Coming for Your Gas Stoves, Your Cars, Your Suburban Home, and Your Children. Uh, I actually did the interview about two weeks ago, and I thought it was interesting that it posted today. Uh, given what we were going to be talking about tonight. So you can check that out on the Not By Works podcast channel. Uh, yesterday, no, yeah, yesterday I was on uh, David Fiorazzo's Stand Up For The Truth, and uh, uh, they called it What Will Be The Outcome Of These Events, and we talked about Daniel 12. Article that will go out Thursday on the church newsletter, but that I've already posted, and Harbinger's Daily picked up. The fog is lifting very short, just a few paragraphs, but I think you'll find it interesting. And then we did, uh, on March 10th, a 90-minute interview with uh, Life Clips on vaccines and the Luciferian agenda. Uh, also want to encourage you, if you haven't already, check out prophecywatchers.com and the Prophecy Summit that just ended uh, a week ago. They've got uh, a package where you can get all 30 video messages. Actually, there's 38 because they threw in some extras, uh, including the two that I did, uh, and stream them for the next six months. So, and then, of course, uh, you know, want to always remind you about the books if you don't already have them. So with that, uh, are there any questions? I know we've only got, we're technically just about out of time, but anybody have any comments or questions before we wrap up for tonight? Thanks for letting me take the, the entire time with, with questions here. Yeah, I mean, with my presentation. A comment, April 8th, Saturday, coming up is a self-reliance marketplace in Elbert County. The, <clears throat> excuse me, it's at the Elbert County Fairgrounds. There will be 30 or 40 or more vendors that will help you process some of these ideas of being self-reliant in terms of food and greenhouses, ammunition. I, if I had the list here, I could help you with that, but. Yeah. Some of you may remember Maggie Witherby. She's the, I've worked with her a few times at different events, and she's been on our podcast, but she's one of the ones heading that up for Elbert County Stands Up. April 8th, that's the Saturday before Easter, uh, Elbert County Fairgrounds, a self-reliance expo. Anybody else? Yes. So there are a lot of um, like really rich evil dudes out there, you know, like uh, Bill Gates and Soros and, and the CNN guy and all those <laughs> And the Fox News guys. Okay. But is, are there any um, rich, like, godly people that, that are trying to push back? And Great do question. Have, do they have any chance of, of maybe, um, you know, fixing the elections back to elections again? I don't. I mean, anything. So the question is, are there any people of wealth that are the good guys, that are pushing back, that are trying to make a difference and maybe fix the elections and things. Certainly anything's possible. The Lord, 
you know, could delay things for another hundred years and we could see a temporary revival and a temporary setback in their plan. But uh, again, the Bible paints a picture of the plan of the ages and everything is unfolding precisely as he said it would. My article that I just wrote called The Fog is Lifting is from Daniel 12, where Daniel and the other prophets in his day uh, basically said, look, I don't understand what I'm writing. And then the, the prophecy says, but as time goes on, people will begin to get more knowledge and they'll begin to understand it. So there are things happening today, and I list several of them in the article, that even 50 years ago, we couldn't have imagined how that would happen. You know, How in the world would someone in the 1800s think that the prophecies related to Israel and the temple and the abomination of desolation and the reign of Christ and all that were going to happen when there was no such thing as Israel. Israel didn't exist and hadn't for 1,800 years. Well, now, as of 1948, ah, okay, now I see. It makes perfect sense because Israel is in existence again. Same same type of thing. So, um, so I, you know, I, I, I think there are certainly plenty of good to ask, answer your original question. I think there are plenty of people who are using their means as best they can to try to make a difference in small ways. Uh, is there a contingent out there that's going to be able to somehow ward off the Luciferian elite? Doesn't appear that way, not without you know God's you know intervention. Uh, and we know that the biblical plan is that things are not going to get better before Christ comes; they're going to get worse. So, uh, that, you know, I, but I know there are good-hearted people who God has blessed materially, and they're using their wealth for to advance the gospel and to support good Bible teaching ministries and things like that. So it's not all doom and gloom. There's some great things happening as the Spirit of God is alive and well. So, yes? Um, so when you say to liquidate our portfolio, do you mean, and then do, where do we put that value, like saying cash it out for like tangible bills? Or Yeah, so as I said, let me pull that up again. Okay. Uh, you know, what you want is to uh, buy tangible commodities. Oh, with that money? Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So if you, I mean, if you're, all, you only want to keep in online accounts and, and portfolios and all that, that which you're willing to lose if it comes to it. Okay. Now, you may not. And, you know, yeah. some people, you know, that are traditional financial advisors that know a lot more about this stuff than I do, they may think you're crazy. You know, you want to leave it in there, you know, especially if you're young. You want to leave it in there for the next 60, 70 years so you'll have enough to retire on. Well, they may be right. But the, the downside of that is you may be like Donnie and find yourself with it all gone. And unlike the Luciferians, we can't just go to the Monopoly box and grab some more $100 bills out of the box. You know, when our money's gone, it's gone. So, yeah, I would say, you know, the... The safe bet is to convert what you can't touch into what you can touch. Okay. Into like dollars and, will dollars and coins be valueless? So uh, the comment is so like dollars. Well, I think in the short term after a collapse, you are going to need some cash, some Federal Reserve notes. Uh, not much because that will very quickly not be worth the paper it's written on. But in the immediate aftermath, you, you will need that. But mostly I'm talking about the things I mentioned, like food, uh, supplies, you know, ammunition, shelter, blankets, flashlights, batteries, uh, medicines, 
prescriptions. You know, Randy and I have talked on our podcast about how you now can get and stockpile uh, uh, antibiotics, among a number of other things now. It's a whole new world of medicine now. You don't even have to have a doctor's appointment. You can go online. It takes about five minutes, and they'll send you a, you know, a year supply. And by the way, it's really a two-year supply because shelf life is longer than what they say of just about every antibiotic you can imagine for every conceivable contingency. And you need to do that because what if you can't get to the doctor? Right. Okay. Or what if the supply chain runs out and the doctors can't get the antibiotics, right? Okay. So anything that you can think of that you can touch, you're going to be glad for if something happens. Again, I'm not predicting a date and saying, hey, tomorrow the sky is falling. But I can tell you the sky is falling, it sure seems like to me. Yeah. Regarding the downfall of America, I'm, I'm sitting here trying to envision what part civil unrest is going to play. Yeah. Having places I grew up in, I don't see people laying things down without a fight. Yeah. I, I, it's parts of the country. I see before 2019, I couldn't have imagined 2020. It's, but... So, yeah, so the question is, what role might civil unrest play and that it's hard to envision, you know, people rolling over? So what you're saying is it's hard to imagine conservative, Bible-believing, gun-owning Christians accepting it when the government says you can't worship Jesus on Easter Sunday? Because 95% of them did. But, but you missed my sarcasm. Ninety-five percent of conservative, Bible-leading, gun-owning Christians stopped worshiping Jesus on Easter Sunday for the first time since 300 A.D. because the government told them to. So if you think you're going to see this massive rebellion, I'm just not seeing it. Uh, don't ever underestimate the ability of people to be deceived, especially as deception is getting worse and worse. But that said, I do think that they are working hard to get as many people on board without that, and then they will use civil unrest as part of a cumulative effect to do this. It's going to be economic. It could be natural disasters. It could be war. It could be civil unrest. I think it will be. I think we will see, as you said, pockets where there's going to be massive civil unrest, but that's only going to work to their favor because you're not going to, if the government decides to turn the mightiest military in the world on its own citizens, as it's done many times, uh, you know, I give several examples in the book, and I don't think my dad will mind me saying this, but he told me when he was in the Army of an experiment that they did on him with uh, Agent Orange, I think it was, he and 40 others, 39 others, where they dropped a drop of it on their skin. He still has a scar to this day. They wanted to experiment how it's going to affect, you know, the enemy when, you, when they spray it on them, right? And that's just one tiny anecdotal example, and I've got tons in the book of the government turning itself on its people. So when the mightiest military in the world decides to do that, you know, you, you really, your protection is going to be mostly uh, for the purpose of protecting yourself against the marauding mobs and the other people that are hungry and looking for food and so forth. So, but I do think civil unrest is going to be a part of it. Not everybody's going to comply, no question. Yes? Right. What was the joy 
the joy wasn't the cross as we had seen him in the garden in anguish, you know, but the joy right. was him reigning in the millennium Absolutely. of Christ. And then um, I was just thinking while the Holy Spirit, like Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing right. with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Great word. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Romans 8, 18. You know, we've got to keep the big picture in mind. We've got to recognize that this is all, it doesn't end with the Antichrist reign. It ends with Christ's reign. And uh, the when we talk about the Great Reset, I wrote an article oh, a couple of years ago for that the Harbingers posted called The Greatest Reset. We talk a lot about the Great Reset. Let's talk about the Greatest Reset when Christ comes back. So, we got to keep that joy set before us, just as as Jesus did, for sure. Anybody else? Okay. Well, thank you guys very much. And uh, next Tuesday, same time, same place. And not sure what is next on my agenda here, but I'll pray about it and look at my notes and pick pick uh, the next uh, topic. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you again for this time together tonight. We do pray that you would uh, fill us not with dread, but with hope as we recognize that uh, a better day is coming and all of these harbingers of uh, the tribulation and the Antichrist are just indications that we're getting closer and closer uh, to meeting you in the sky. So Lord, dismiss us now with your watch care and blessing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.